Welcome back to Beetroot. Welcome back to another episode of Beetroot. We're so excited to be back. We've made it onto the virtual podcasting platform once more that is Zoom with a Zoom. <laughs> Zoom with a Zoom. It gets so confusing to try and coordinate recording over Zoom with a Zoom recorder because you don't know which Zoom you're referring to. It's a whole logistical uh, <laughs> a whole logistical situation, but we're getting so good at this. We are masters of the long distance podcast relationship. All for the love of poetry. <laughs> How have you been, Marta? I've been good. I'm on holiday now, so I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of uh, a lot of poetry reading. Yeah, just relaxing, a bit of time off of clown school, which is really nice. <laughs> Does clown school ever really stop? Does it ever really cease? Uh, no, it, it, it bleeds into life a lot, actually. <laughs> I'm really excited for the day that you are assigned your clown, which Marta has told me about. And the day, the day cometh when you will be given your clown by, is it Louis? So my teacher's name is Philippe Gaulier and the last the last workshop that we do with him is the clown workshop, which is his like area of expertise. And he kind of it's like this old 80 year old man and he looks at you and he has this little drum and he just kind of like sees straight into your soul, apparently, and tells you what your clown is. He's like, your clown is a baby. Boom. And then he hits the drum and kind of bestows you <laughs> your character. So if you weren't tuning in weekly to listen to Beetroot, tune in to find out what Marta's clown is eventually. Exactly. I mean, that's that's one reason to stay hooked. How have you been? Lottie has been playing tennis this morning. Oh, that makes me sound very raw. But yes, I have been playing tennis this morning. Basically, me and a friend use tennis as like a gossiping vehicle. So we will go to the courts in the morning and we hit the tennis ball back and forth and we just chat it's really great because it gets we kind of have a distraction from how bad we are at tennis so <laughs> i know i love i love these like gossip excuses i used to have that with a friend of mine we'd go to the swimming pool do about two laps and then we would sit on the edge of the swimming pool and be like did you hear what rachel did last weekend <laughs> who knew that we were so sporty my goodness swimming tennis my god but enough about sport that's that doesn't belong on this podcast um <laughs> we're here to talk about poetry of course of course and we have a very special special theme this week which is family i like to think of you as family marta <laughs> no but it's true i mean it's something that i was already thinking about kind of when i was selecting a poem because like your chosen family your your friend family there's a lot there's a lot of spaces that this word goes into you know families come such a long way as a word from the 1960s ronald reagan nuclear family i mean you know families pop up all the time in different constellations. But I wanted to share a poem with you this week, Marta, and it's by a poet called Mary Jean Chan, who I have been obsessed with since her, I think it's her debut collection called uh, Fleisch. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but it's um, the cross-linguistic pun presents the queer non-white body as both vulnerable flesh and weaponized Fleisch and evokes the difficulties of reconciling one's need for safety alongside the desire to shed one's protective armor in order to fully embrace the world. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, Fleisch. Yes, it means arrow. So good to have you here, Marta. That's amazing. Actually, that reminds me, do you remember the episode that we did in the first season of Beetroot? I recently re-listened re to it, but it was a poem about, uh, I remember it was with your friend, what's her name, Margot? William Blake, the sick rose. Yeah, and I remember us talking about poems as though they were arrows and that that poem especially was like an arrow that went straight into the heart. Yeah, so this is, this is her 
yeah, this is one of her, her collections. Um, and she grew up in Hong Kong and now she lives in London and um, she's a lecturer in creative writing um, at Oxford Brookes University and she's receiving all the praise she deserves for her work um, because it really is beautiful. So if you have a chance to, please do check out Mary Jean Chan. And the poem I want to share with you is called Conversation with Fantasy Mother. Dear Fantasy Mother, Thank you for taking my coming out as calmly as a pond accepts a stone flung into its depths. You sieved my tears, added an egg, then baked a beautiful cake. You said, let us celebrate, for today you are reborn as my beloved. The candles gleamed and the icing was almost true, impossibly white, coated with the sweetness of sprinkles. We sat together at the table and ate. Afterwards, I returned to my room and touched all the forbidden parts of myself, felt a kindness I had not known in years. Oh, wow. I, I realise that every time we read a poem to each other, the first thing we always do is... Oh. <laughs> I know, we just can't help but exasperate over how beautiful words are sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, cho I chose this poem because, like I was saying to you at the beginning when we talked about the concept of family, I think that there are so many ways you can imagine family and how family assembles around you as you go through so many different changes as a person. And it kind of made me think of the families that come together in the ballroom scene, in, in drag and queer scene especially um, and I remember we we watched Paris is Burning together I think as a, as a class once and you know learning the concept of a mother in in the context of an underground subculture which has known so much violence and rejection but then coming together in that love and you know this poem is about a coming out she's being accepted um, as a pond accepts a stone flung into its depths and that's all we want, really, isn't it, for our mothers to accept us in that nature. And some of us are lucky enough to have that and, and some of us aren't. But I hope eventually we find it some way. Yeah. How do you how do you understand the fantasy mother? I think I understand the fantasy mother is imagining what your heart's desire is in terms of care, in terms of love. Because, for instance, personally, when I find it, when I find the world too darn hard or, you know, quite overwhelming, I have this, you know, desire to call my mum or if things, you know, when days are really hard and when I feel like the world is taking a lot from me as a person, you just want to return to, yeah, the womb kind of, to that place of, of rest and nurture and, and care. It's... It's hard to think of a world without my mother. Either there's there's been a loss of a mother or the mother doesn't meet the expectations of, of this child. And that's that's equally okay to, to go searching for that care in someone else and to find, you know, someone who does accept you as a, as a stone that's flung into its depths. My relationship with my mother is changing so much into something so beautiful and so accepting it it's a relationship that evolves and changes and it's not stagnant so I think fantasy could uh, allude to a future mother the one that she hopes her mother is the one maybe the mother that she might become someday because it's 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 in us to 
to provide that care for people and to provide that nurturing and that mothering not to embellish it within a feminine context either you know being a mother is so often thought as feminine and and weak and passive and I think it's so it's so much strength and I think this poem is very strong as well and it's quite short and I think it's because each stanza is so certain of, of what it wants and what it's saying and even the text that's included, you said, let us celebrate for today, you are reborn as my beloved. It's the kind of thing you'd write on a gravestone or, you know, you'd want to put permanently somewhere on a statue. So that's how I interpret it. Because for me, it's funny, I, the way I see it is nearly as though, I don't know, the poem is creating the mother. Because I know, I know this feeling of like, really so desperately wanting this moment of like full acceptance that's really like calming and soothing and makes you feel like you're all right in your in your body and who you are like really the way she describes it I think is so uh, beautiful as a pond except a stone being flung to its depths but I guess many of us are not necessarily lucky to get a moment like that and so when I saw when I saw conversation with fantasy mother as opposed to conversation with mother I imagine okay this is maybe not a conversation that she's actually been allowed to have or had the occasion to have but she's deciding to create that moment for herself within the poem and like it's such a it's such a soothing poem you know even just the sounds like you sieved my tears it feels like someone is like I don't know brushing your hair or something like nearly she's creating a mother within the poem and giving giving herself this moment of acceptance and love that's symbolized through that say this all-consuming motherly motherly love and I don't know there's something I don't know there's like a concept in psychology that I'm not versed in but the idea of like reparenting yourself or remothering yourself giving that child in your you know that child that maybe didn't get certain moments um for example this moment of acceptance and let's say like a queer coming out to give that to yourself and I think that's also what's you know I guess one of the powers in, in words and writing is that we get to create moments for ourselves that maybe didn't exist also in the real world well yeah exactly like poems are are reimaginings in some way and i think this is definitely honoring the inner child it's sort of constructing the the mother that you need and that and that all of us deserve as well we all deserve this love and this acceptance it is it's the conversation of dreams if you think of coming out like such what a nerve-wracking moment to to face with any anyone in your life that you're close with for the speaker it looks exactly like this but it's a fantasy which is almost the heartbreaking part of all this because you reach the end of this poem and then you look back at the title and you realize it's all been it's it's not autobiographical it hasn't happened but the beauty of a coming out and and queerness is just celebrated by this mother. Like, you sieved my tears, added an egg, then baked a beautiful cake. Like, coming out as a birthday. Like, imagine if all of our comings comings out. You know, I didn't have that with my with my mother. I didn't have to. I had to go back in the closet, if anything. She was like, I'm so certain that this child is a lesbian. And I was like, actually, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I, I partake in both sports, uh, both tennis and swimming. But, you know, and I, I didn't really have that. But for it to have been as, as beautiful as a birthday, as a celebration, and some people are lucky enough to have that, but so many of us aren't. Mm. And also what I liked about it is like, it's a celebration, but not in the sense of like, like, I don't know, for example, when I came out to my dad, he just went, cool beans. <laughs> 
<laughs> verbatim. And I think and I think that kind of a birthday, but like, you know, it's not like, oh my God, yay, gay, love it, yes, queen. Um, but there's something just very like calming of finally nearly, you know, what she says with the rebirth, like finally coming into yourself in a more authentic way. And I think if there's something that I definitely felt like, you know, in that whole process of like coming to terms with like queerness and all of that, you know, the beautiful part of it is that you sort of do get to be reborn in life as a more authentic version of yourself, you know, and it is something it's like it's a, it's an explosion, but like a kind of a quiet explosion, you know, and to to be accepted, like just taken in in this like sort of slow, kind hug. I think is the best response that you could ever feel, you know? Yeah, you know, I keep saying the the speaker when I'm talking about this poem, but I I really do think it's it's Mary Jean Chan, simply because it's it kind of echoes a lot of the style and form and narrative of so many of the confessional poets that we know, and especially women conf- confessional poets, you know, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, and so much of their confessional poetry orbits the idea of motherhood as well and being a mother, imagining themselves into different contexts, into different worlds, but also confessing their innermost desires. And that's also what I love about this poem. Like I, I love it when a when a poet lets us see a part of their world because we we're all the greater for it. You know, our our, our lives and our thinking is enriched when we when we read about different minds different cultures different ways of thinking you know with the concept of family i've been you know i've been so obsessed with with mothers and literature recently i'm writing a book about um my my mother and, and myself um and our relationship um but I was really struck by Eleanor Ferrante's novel, The Lost Daughter, and Maggie Gyllenhaal did an amazing film adaptation of that very small book. She she managed to take what I assume is sort of a 150-page book and turn it into, um, you know, this sort of two-hour-long film. It's all from a first-person narrative, but she she explores the world of this mother in such great detail that I don't think we've been seeing up until you know the last sort of five or ten years we focus so much on the children and I don't think that this poem prioritizes one or the other because it's as much as the child appealing to the mother as it is the child thanking the mother dear fantasy mother thank you for taking my coming out as calmly as a pond accepts a stone and that thanking I think avoids the dismissal of of Mary Jean Chan's mother being inadequate in any way. It's just asking, you know. You can only ask for this kind of acceptance and and love, and hopefully, receive it. Mm. Yeah, I also have a question for you. Like, just I mean, I guess with this poem, but further, what what do you think draws you so much to mothers and also sort of mother daughter relationships? Like, is it just your personal? you know, relationship with your mother or is there like some concepts or some things there that you're interested in? Wow, I feel like I should be lying down on the couch. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I really don't know. I think I've gotten to such a wonderful place in my life with my mother and our relationship and sort of all of the kids have left home. Um, my mum, you know, raised four children and did such a brilliant job and she was a single mother for so long and I think the older I get, the more I'm learning to appreciate and respect and be in awe of the 
decisions and the sacrifices she's had to make you know she she aced it she she did a such a good job and that's that's me also acknowledging how wonderful my siblings are as well and it's not always sunshine daisies roses obviously like when whenever is it with family but i think seeing different representations and narratives and versions surrounding mothers and daughters is informing me as to how women come into being what it is to raise a woman what it is to you know have the absence of a mother or have the presence of a of a certain type of mother as well and we deal with so much as a community of of women it's sort of like a passing down the baton passing the olympic torch if you will so i think that's what draws me to those types of narratives and also it's just very you know you write what you know and i think the women in my family are so formidable and so wonderful that I, I can't help but write about them. Yeah, it's funny because actually like we put the theme as family, but the poem that I brought in is also a poem about mothers. So it's interesting to see. I mean, maybe it's just a coincidence or maybe it's just us, but it's I do think that there, you know, when you think of family, like, I mean, the father figure is something completely different. Siblings are also a completely different type of love. But there is something about motherly love now whether you get it from your mother or you get it from your father or you get it from um you know another person in your life but something about how we have described motherly love that i think represents what at least we conceptualize as that family love as this sort of unconditional caretaking it's a very it's a very beautiful kind of love to to look at i think there is something about motherly love like even as you say here i think it's very beautiful this sort of thanking because I do think that you know especially in the kind of let's say you know how we sort of expect uh let's say women to kind of be constantly caring and you know kind of emotionally available and do a lot of emotional labor let's say being a mother is a very difficult role and position to take on sometimes and you know I know especially like in mother-daughter relationships that can be quite conflictual in a certain sense you kind of sometimes forget to also take a step back and and I think just about uh that kind of love I feel like it's beautiful here that they use a, a cooking met metaphor because I think there is something in the love of a fa like when I was thinking about the love of a family I was thinking a lot about food because I was thinking of like it's a love that is in a way grandiose but like also very very habitual and I think that comes like for example in the fact of preparing a meal and like every day kind of spending the time to like put something together and feeding you know your family and eating together or whatever um, and I feel like there's a strong connection at least for me between like food and dinner and family you know they go quite quite hand in hand. Yeah definitely I wanted to ask um, actually sort of The moment when Mary Jean Chan says we sat together at the table and ate, you know, it feels like the poem could end there. But then she goes on to say, afterwards, I returned to my room and touched all the forbidden parts of myself, felt a kindness I had not known in years. That's the part that made me go, it's it's a confessional poem. It feels like, like this is what she was wanting to convey in this poem. I wondered what you made of that, that last little bit of stanza. Well, I thought it was interesting because also like when you, you know, you wouldn't think of necessarily like in a poem about family or about your relationship with your mother, like 
coming back to like ending it on a scene sort of about masturbation it feels it feels strange but the way I saw it was kind of in relation to the reborn I feel like there's something in this like idea of being reborn like as though she can finally inhabit her body in the way that she wants to and in the way that she maybe hasn't been able to because she hasn't been given or giving herself that kindness in years sort of giving you know be it to herself or the fantasy mother or the real mother we don't really know who's giving her this acceptance of just being like you are you know you are reborn this is your body you can feel good and you know comfortable in it and I feel like it's it's weirdly not like shocking or you're not like oh okay weird weird take of the poem it feels like it kind of runs naturally that then she just kind of goes into her into her like private space her private area and she gets to like enjoy this this newfound kindness and comfort with her with her body and her sexuality we make each other up you know we construct each other absolutely and it it doesn't have to be you know the family that you didn't choose either it could be the one that you have chosen or have had to have chosen in order to survive because we need we need that care and that community and i think this poem speaks beautifully to both speaking of choices what did you choose to bring along to our family episode, Marta? Well, so I decided to bring along a poem called Summer by Robin Costa Lewis. Um, I haven't done that much research on like her and what she writes. But one thing that I do know is that all the other poems in the collection are quite long poems, like very, very sort of intricate. She teaches Sanskrit at, at a university in the US, so like also kind of inspired from uh, that let's say linguistic traditions or like very complex poems and then you know in the middle of the collection there's this poem summer which is like a very sort of short poem and quite simple in a certain sense and I don't know it really struck me as I read it well here I'll read it first and then I'll kind of share my first thoughts about it summer last summer two discreet young snakes left their skin on my small porch two mornings in a row. Being postmodern now, I pretended as if I did not see them nor understand what I knew to be circling inside me. Instead, every hour I told my son to stop with his incessant back chat, I peeled a banana and cursed God, his arrogance, his gal, to still expect our devotion after creating love and mosquitoes. I showed my son the papery dead skins so he could know too what it feels like when something shows up at your door twice telling you what you already know beautiful oh i love it yeah i mean like so i was kind of yeah like the first thing is like i was kind of hesitant to bring in this poem because i didn't necessarily like i couldn't pinpoint exactly like how it fit into the the theme of family and it's quite an ambiguous poem like you know telling you what you already know what you know what do you already know like there was a lot of questions in this poem that I had unanswered so I thought oh god if I bring it on like what am I going to say about it but then I was listening back to another episode that we had done and I messaged you about this one thing that we said in a past episode that I thought was really beautiful and kind of gave me the like courage to bring this poem on was like we compared poetry to the sun in the idea that you couldn't look directly at it that sometimes its essence is blurry and the words are not evident to grasp but that it makes everything around it visible and it allows you to look at yourself and the world around you and see things better and like when I read this poem 
it just like struck a chord inside of me and I didn't necessarily know why but I felt like it was telling me a lot about family and about how you know what family is to me or like it was just revealing a lot of things within the family like theme of family and I guess like the the first sort of more personal thing I guess that it like made me think of is I think the main thing that my mum always kind of taught me and it was like kind of her I don't know something that she found really important to pass down to me was the idea that knowledge was in the gut or in the belly and to really trust my my intuitions um like the things that I already knew as she says in the poem the things that you know you can pretend to not see but you know you know your belly knows like my mom would always be like you know your belly knows and that kind of knowledge that feels nearly magical because it's not you know it's not rational you're not sure where it comes from but it's it has something nearly ancestral about it like the gut feeling it's nearly like it's nearly like the knowledge that is passed down in the family like the generational knowledge nearly that's like gets etched in your dna and that gets passed to you to sort of help you make decisions and maybe your mind is telling you one thing but you just know in your gut and so like in this poem i guess that's how i interpreted like what she's passing down to the son you know when she's showing her you know him the the dead skins of the snakes she's sort of for me the way that I interpreted that but that's just from my personal experience was like she's teaching him about about that knowledge that sort of profound gut you know ancestral knowledge that he, he is going to have to learn how to trust because at some point a gut feeling is going to come and knock at your door, you know, and it's going to tell you, you need to be rebirthed. You're, you know, this, you know, if you see the snake skin is all, you know, a symbol for like rebirth and all of that. And you just gotta, you gotta listen to it. You know, you gotta trust it. Marta, you're going to kill me for what I'm about to do because we've gotten so far away from our allusions to religion over the past couple of episodes Oh God, it just, it seems like we've both been living at a convent and it's just all that we can talk about. But I've, I've having just read it with you now, the speaker, it seems like Eve as a mother. I don't know, the two discreet young snakes left their skin on my, on my small porch and, you know, the, the image of, of Eve in, in the garden and, you know, she talks to the snake and, and eats the apple and that's sort of a metaphor for knowledge and this human sort of you know, taking a bite out of something that's forbidden and, and knowledge being power in some way. And I loved the line, and cursed God, his arrogance, his gall, to still expect our devotion after creating love. And it feels like Eve having the last word and, you know, raising a son to think differently and to think, rejoice love above all else, above religion and, and creation and to focus on that all-encompassing love I don't know if if you got that kind of metaphor reading the poem at all but it's just sort of um leapt out at me but I, I love this idea of of the figure of Eve having a son to to steer in a different direction because I feel like there are so many so many negative ideas about motherhood and femininity come from what we have understood from religion and what has come to normalize itself in our culture and our society through religion. And that, that being, you know, that Eve was taken from the rib of Adam, that somehow we are a small, smaller, we are less, we are lesser, that the mother, that the mother isn't strong, that we don't have that, that power within us. And yet we forget 
that it is the mother that creates life and that it is the mother that brings us into this world. And I think she reinserts that narrative. That's so interesting. I really, I guess I didn't really pick that up in in that way, uh, like even with the image of the snake, but that's so interesting because it's true. I guess, you know, I guess there there could be two schools, the school that says, you know, God creates us all. And then the school that says, no, mother creates us all. And I love that image of Eve as a mother, because I also, I actually wrote a, an essay about this um, for one of our classes, but I was looking at uh, uh, rewritings of you know, the story of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and stuff in different sort of books or whatever, um, including Jenny Haval's Paradise Rot. Um, but with the idea of like, when you rewrite this story that is sort of at the foundation of how, let's say, like our Christian Western world organizes, you know, its categories and its, you know, its, uh, its questions of like ethics or whatever, what kind of stories are you rewriting? You know, what kind of new norms or paradigms are you creating for the new this new generation to live in and I love like what if we took that story and continued it and then saw Eve as a mother and you know saw what the you know the second snake in a way um of this story could tell us and I think that's quite you know and there's something there is something about shedding I feel you know this this poem is in a certain way quite concerned with things that were once part of the body and are not like the the snake skin um you know even the peel of the banana the kid in a way that was part of the body and leaves the body like there is something about rewriting a new something new what do you think of the the line being postmodern now i pretended as if i did not see them nor understand what i knew to be circling inside me because it that seems to take a departure from what you're saying about rewriting something for a new generation and for new children mm. I mean I love that line I feel like I just chose this poem because of that line it made me laugh so much like the being postmodern now <laughs> yeah I mean for me like except for the humor of it that I really appreciated it I guess there was two things because I guess like I don't think that necessarily postmodern and rewriting are out of hands I think that actually they go quite well I think she's trying to pass on a kind of knowledge that is not sort of godly and uh, unified and that presents one truth. But obviously, like with postmodernism, it's kind of the idea of like multiplicities, um, looking beyond the idea of like one single truth and kind of like different narratives and stuff like that. I guess for me, it's like I feel like there's a lot of contradictions between postmodernism, which let's say is quite also like a, a secular way of seeing the world with then like God and, you know, how could you expect our devotion after creating love and mosquitoes? And then she talks about peeling the banana, but then at the same time talking about really deep things. And I think that was the other aspect of it that kind of made me think about family and familial love is that family love. I mean, I kind of said this a little bit before, but is at once the most sort of grandiose, let's say like all consuming unconditional love. And at the same time, the most banal love where like it's just the insensate back chat of a kid and peeling a banana and fucking mosquitoes on a holiday. But then at the same time, it is the curse of God and the snake skins. And like, that's how I read that line a little bit was also like just in contradiction with the line about God and something that was at once really, really big and at once very, very small and and daily and uh, you know, all about bananas and mosquitoes. 
I think this poem also does such a good job of employing metaphors that work together and that are in conversation with each other. So, you know, for instance, two discreet young snakes. It feels like these snakes stand for a seed that begins to grow inside someone's mind, right? Because we learn so so much of, of what it is to be in a body and whether we feel shame around that body, how we use that body, how we respect other people's bodies, how we come to understand the the concepts of masculine and feminine, these all stem from family and our upbringing. It feels like Robin Costa Lewis is trying to convey and successfully conveying how complicated it can be to raise a son in that context and to approach the seeds of knowledge that plant themselves in children so so young nowadays as well because you know I didn't have screens growing up nor did you you know these seeds of knowledge that plant themselves and fester and grow it's sometimes in the most ugly of ways but if they leave their skin on the porch I showed my son the papery dead skin so he would know too what it feels like when something shows up at your door twice telling you what you already know she can raise this son to the best of her ability to you know to believe in certain things that she too believes in and yet it is up to him just like your mother tells you to know that knowledge in his gut and to know better and to think twice about whatever turns up at the door and to say no i i believe in love i you know i believe in in my mother and and what she's taught me but these snakes you know and the snake being such a I feel like snakes get such a bad time in literature but these snakes being such negative symbols um which have the power to poison a mind what I love about both of our poems as well is that they're so small and so succinct and it takes so little sometimes to convey such a big idea I I wanted to ask why do you think the the poem's called summer that's a really good that's a really good question I mean for me, both our poems in a way are quite sensorial poems. Like I think you can really, you know, I think in yours that image of the water, of the calmness, of the cake, like you can really feel that and see that. And I think that in this poem, although it goes everywhere, let's say, you know, from God or whatever, it's also quite local in the sense, at least for me, that image of like last summer on my small porch, two mornings in a row, I see it so clearly like I see that kind of like summer morning on a porch in a house and I think that that image that's like at least for me it kind of evoked I don't know going on summer holidays with my family um, nearly something of, of the, the space of like a memory you know like a, something quite sleepy I don't know I think there's something about that um, like very concrete sensorial space that kind of ties it all down you know because otherwise maybe the poem would be a little bit too all over the place or a little bit too broad but it's so broad but it brings you back home you know (laughs) maybe in the similar way that a family would do you go and you go and explore all of these questions or whatever but it kind of comes back to just that last that last summer and that small porch and the the sunshine and the home environment what about you I mean I think summer is the setting for all of the images she's talking of so bananas, mosquitoes, snakes. I don't associate these images with winter or spring, definitely not autumn. But also, I, 
I read that she was born in California and her family is from New Orleans. And I feel like that is such a sunny part of the US and that their summers are hot and long. And, you know, both those settings that, you know, Robin Costa Lewis has brought to the poem to discuss a topic which she might find herself up against right now. I'm not sure if she has sons or if this is confessional because we've also spoken about the idea of Eve being the speaker, but I think that she sets the scene and the scene is summer. It's just, it it makes total sense. It wouldn't make sense to be in any other season. Yeah, I know. I also, I mean, I think we, our time has run out. We've been chatting for ages, but I would just like to come back on just the word sieved my tears from the first poem I love that image like I can't the idea of like sieving just that like visual is like it's it's that's staying in my heart <laughs> I know I also was like because I've I've heard a sieve called so many things before like a colander or a strainer and I was so happy that she chose the word sieve because it's such a good word and I don't see it enough in poems especially alongside tears Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should start uh, picking out our favorite words out of each poem. Just like having a little moment of just like how much a word can enthuse. (laughs) Yes. And putting like a patchwork poem. There we go. We'll do a patchwork poem. That's exactly what we'll do. Very vintage beetroot move. If you're a seasoned listener, you will recall our episode where we combined. What did we call that poem again? We called it just communal poem. Oh, the communal poem. That was so wonderful. Maybe we'll do the same with words. Maybe not. Who knows? Stay tuned. We always leave a little mystery to keep you coming back. Will they do a patchwork poem and what will Marta's clown be? (laughs) I'm dying to know. I imagine it's like a star sign, astrology, birth chart reading. I feel it. It is. I think it's exactly that. I will will carry that clown with me. It'll It'll be on my Tinder bio. It's like, Cancer, Cancer Sun, Pisces Moon, <laughs> Baby Clown Rising. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I can't wait to record another episode with you. But for now, this is all we have time for. That's poetry in a nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you haven't called your family in a while, give them a call. Say hey. Tell them you love them. Mm-hmm.